This is Commerce Shenanigans, episode 668, another conversation with Jed Winnick. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 668. It's yet another conversation with Judd Winnick. Yes, Judd Winnick, who was just on episode 666, comes back for another conversation. This time we go, we do a much deeper dive. Last time we talked about his work on Hilo, uh, went really deep on the process, uh, what it's been like to kind of promote the book, etc. Well, this time we went a lot further on his comic book work. We went way back to talk about Titans and his work on Green Lantern. It was much more of a deeper dive into those books, and I really enjoyed it. It was a really great uh, uh, to be able to have Judd on the show and again talk about all these different things he's worked on in the in the, in the past uh, and actually do a, a real deep dive. I mean, I remember when these books were coming out, uh, it was much earlier in kind of the comic book media. I would say like there wasn't really any comic book podcast at the time. Uh, you might read interviews here and there, but it was obviously more likely to be more sanitized stuff. Or this felt like we could have a really good kind of free free flowing discussion of what it was like to create certain things in the Green Lantern book and on the Titans book. Uh, and it was just for me as a, as a reader of those books immensely entertaining and interesting and i think you're really going to enjoy it it was a great conversation judd is nothing nothing short of fantastic as a guest and i'm just so glad to have him back on the show this is his third appearance uh so hopefully we'll have him back next year for high low book six uh, when that book comes out uh, in early 2020 uh but for the for now i want you to sit back and relax and enjoy another conversation with judd winnick uh and if you want to email me at comic shenanigans you can do so at comic shenanigans at gmail.com like the show on facebook rate and review us on itunes subscribe to us on itunes and also listen to us on Stitcher. So without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation with Judd Winnick. Judd, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans. This is going to come out, I think, a week after your last appearance, but it's been a little bit of time since we've last connected, and I'm really excited to be able to do a little bit of a deeper dive into your comic book work. Excellent. It's been a week. A lot has changed. We should, we should, we should definitely address it. <laughs> So I want to go way back because in our last our last conversations, I don't think we really talked about how the Green Lantern book ended up kind of being something that you ended up on. Like, I'm just curious because you, you kind of come on the scene and then you take over Green Lantern. What, what was what was the state of the book at the time? How did you kind of get positioned as the new writer? Did you know it was going to be an ongoing gig or did you think it was going to be a series of fill-ins? Like, I'm just curious how it was positioned as you kind of make your entrance into the comic book industry. Well, the quick answer is all those things. Um, I uh, to backpedal a little bit. So this is uh, um, late late nineties, early two thousands. Um, so I had I had done a graphic novel uh, based on my my experiences uh, on reality TV, and it was uh, it was about my friend Pedro Zamora. Um, and uh, prior to that, I had met uh, Bob Shrek who uh, was a big-time editor at Dark Horse Comics and then founded his own imprint, his own, his own, uh, his own publishing house. So he created uh, Oni Press. And um, I met him at Comic-Con, I want to say like in 97-ish, around there. Um, and uh, he and I became friends. I mean, I, he, you know, I, I knew who he was, and then he realized I was that guy from the show, and we started talking. <laughs> and we kept in touch. And... Uh, I sent him uh, like an early, really good draft. You know, it took a couple of tries to get Pedro and me. 
off the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I finally got to like a shape that I was I felt comfortable with, I'd actually sent it to him. And uh, Bob was really, really enthusiastic and supportive, uh, including telling me that, okay, you need to go find a mainstream publisher for this. But if nobody wants to do it, we'll publish it. <laughs> he said, and I think I think you should talk to DC Comics as well, as well as people who make you know mainstream books and bookstores. Uh, so we had that ongoing relationship, um, and then um, we kept in touch, as I said. And then uh, Ron Mars was going to step away from Green Lantern. He'd been writing it for a really long time, mm-hmm. and he he was ready to step away. And then Bob turned to me. And said, would you be interested in writing Green Lantern? And I think his first question was, do you like superhero comics? Like, yeah, yeah, I do. Because <laughs> <laughs> we, we hadn't really talked about it. Um, I missed the part where Bob like went from Oni Press to taking a job at DC Comics, but he did. Um, and I was one of the few people who didn't call him right away looking for work. Because um, I just, not that I didn't want it, it just didn't seem right to me. Mm-hmm. But um, Ron and Bob have been talking about for a number of while that they wanted it. Uh, this is in the shadow of. Um, Matthew Shepard's murder. Uh, Matthew Shepard was a young gay man who was uh, beaten to death um, because he was gay. And Bob and Ron were kicking around this idea for a while that they wanted to introduce a character and eventually address the idea of having a hate crime. And uh, while it was going on, Ron decided that he had had enough of Green Lantern and was going to step away. Uh, but Ron actually was felt, felt partial to the storyline that they'd come up with um, and also wanted Bob wanted Ron to be happy with who he was going to take over the book after him. So they talked about it, and my name came up, and Bob wanted to know if I wanted to come on and write some Green Lantern. And uh, no, I had never written superhero comics before. I had never written comics before aside from my own. Mm. Um, so Bob gave me a pretty quick tutorial. He sent me some other people's scripts, gave me some very sound advice about like how to write a script. It's like think of it, you know, look, look, you know, look at the comic that you like and write it like a screenplay. Um, here's the format, do it in the format, write it like you're writing a letter to the artist, because that's what you're doing. You're not addressing the audience, you're, you're addressing the artist who's going to construct this. Mm-hmm. And he said, and we'll take it from there. At the time, I wasn't going to be made the regular writer. It was just, we're going to go try this out. You know, he said, let's write, let's write. You know, he said, uh, we'll give you six issues, and we'll see how you do. And Mike Carlin was down with it. I, like, wrote three, and Carlin read, Mike Carlin, who's editor-in-chief at the time, read them and liked them. And that was it. That's how it started. Um, it's with this. It's the advice I give to a lot of people. It's like, yeah, when people give you something you don't know how to do, just go ahead and do it. <laughs> <laughs> the, the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to get fired. And you know, it's not like you know, it's then you're not doing it anyway. So don't worry about it. Just get in there. Um, so I was lucky enough that I just got in there. And uh, if I do say so myself, I had a decent affinity for it. Um, probably because I read superhero comics my entire life, combined with that I loved film, and uh, anyone who is in comics can tell you that you know it's a visual medium, and if if you if you know both, you can do it well. Mm-hmm. And that was it. You know, that's kind of how it happened. It um, I would say it happened sort of quickly, but not exactly. It was you know sort of a slow process. Do you want to do this? Yes. Wrote some scripts. Carlin liked them, and off we went. You know, and that's how I got started in Green Lantern. So I have a question about that. So I mean, so when you start writing the book, you're working with Daryl Banks, and then kind of ha- partway through your run, you, you transition over to working with Dale Eaglesham. What was that transition like from you, from your standpoint? Like, did you write any differently when you saw how the pages were coming in? Did you tailor your stories differently, or and again, what was it like to kind of 
cut your teeth on writing superhero comics with a, a guy like Daryl Banks, who's, you know, by that point has really kind of, he is what Kyle was at that point. Like everyone's used to his rendition of the character. So how would you, how would you kind of get used to someone who has had such a long tenure on the book? Oh, it's, well, again, I, I had absolutely nothing to compare it to. I, <laughs> I, I, I had not written for any other artist ever. Like, this was the first time I was writing for someone else. And, again, I had Bob's advice. Write it like you're writing a letter. So I would write it as, you know, just like that. I'm talking to Daryl. I am talking to Daryl. And, um, you know, a lot of times uh, what you do when you're writing a comic, again, it's a visual medium. And you you can say things like, I want to look like – you don't say, I want this person on the right-hand side of the panel and this one in the foreground, the left-hand side of the panel. And, you know, you don't get specific. You don't block it out. What you do is you describe what's going on there. It's like, you know, so in the case of like sort of just, so, you know, so, so Kyle enters, you know, Kyle enters his apartment and Jade is already sitting at, at the table. Um, you know, that's just, and that's it. That's all you need to do. And if, it's, if there's an emotion involved, say like, you know, and, and you know, Kyle looks extremely irritated. Um, now and again, you might say, it's summer, so why don't we put him in shorts and a t-shirt and her in the same? You know, something like that. Um but if you want something like like it's got some kind of emotional punch later, you just have to kind of reference it to them. Like, okay, look. So what I want from this scene, you know, that scene in Platoon where Willem Dafoe is getting shot up at the end, like everything he's dead, and he runs out of the jungle and he throws his arms up in the air, you know, and he's on his knees. Like, I kind of want it to feel like that, not look like that, but kind of feel like that. That sense of like ah, desperation. Can you get something like that? And. Ninety percent of the time, that's all an artist needs. Like, yeah, they, they, they want the feeling of it. You know, hmm. you know, you can get specific sometimes if you need it. You know, sometimes it needs to be that specific. Other times, it's just sort of you know what you're kind of going for. Um, in the same way that you would have to tell an actor what they're doing, mm-hmm. you don't literally tell an actor what they're doing when you're directing a movie. Writing a comic is the same way. You're working with the artist. You kind you kind of tell them what you're looking for, and they land it. Sometimes, sometimes they need more. I mean, it, you know, it d- depends on the artist, and it depends what you find. You know, in my case with Daryl, yeah, Daryl's a, as you said, he's a seasoned comic book illustrator, and he had done Kyle Rayner from the very beginning with Ron. So I didn't need to push him in any particular direction. It was all there. Um, so he, that made it very, very easy. And then transitioning to Dale again, it was really easy as well. Um, you know, Dale is someone who was a terrific artist and could do things differently. I don't know if I tailored it any differently mm. to him. Um, I, um, I know I got particularly chatty a little bit later <laughs> and, uh, which made Dale a little bit nuts. And that was the note that came back to me a couple of times. Like you just got people like sitting in a room talking. Let's, let's, let's try to figure something out here. <laughs> there's a little, there's a little more, a little more business going on. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also a time when we were all, I mean, the collective we, we as writers during the early 2000s, um, we got really verbal. We, we put a lot of words on the page. Um, that was sort of, you know, if you look at like the bigger guys like Kevin Smith and Brian Bendis, um, they were they were chatty as hell. Um, and we <laughs> did that as well. We were putting a lot, lot of dialogue down. And uh, it took me a while to sort of, uh, find a better rhythm. It took a couple of years, like yeah, I think I want to talk less and like have like have the art speak as much as I can. Like mm. how how much can I do here where we're not, you know, trying to put the phone book in every page. When you first start putting together your first couple scripts, and again you're kind of working on it, do you, do you find as 
with having a cartoonist background, were you, would you ever like kind of sketch it out or kind of block it out in your head from a visual standpoint and then kind of put that into the script or were you never kind of working that way? Or was it just script and then giving it on to the, to the artist? I think the pages, which were like heavy action sequences, I, I could see them in my head and uh, it became for me, I draw differently. I draw differently than the comic book artists. I really do. I'm a cartoony cartoonist. Um, my stuff looks like comic strips. And there's a difference. I mean, we could pretend there's not a difference, but there is. And, you know, I, I've been, you know, I do action sequences. I did them Barry Ween, and I've been doing them for years now with uh, with Hilo. And, you know, I did an animated series where it was all action. Um, so I, I, I feel comfortable with action. I didn't feel the need to actually sketch it out because I'm like, you know, that's what they do. You know, I might, I might get really specific, never putting pencil to paper to figure it out, but I might get really specific in the instructions because I see it in my head. And I just love it so dang much that I really want them to kind of try and do it like this. Cause I think it'll be really, really cool. That's the only time it really would happen where, you know, I would get really specific, but I would never draw it out. I would never draw it out. I would write it. I, I don't think I ever had to, Again, I think because I see it in my head, because I am, because uh, I do draw, I wouldn't have to. I could see it. Hmm. Now, I have a question. You mentioned that the, the idea for the, the Terry character kind of came very early and was actually kind of predated your take your arrival on the book. When you came on, How? Wh- what was the conversation like on, on how slowly you guys would eventually build to having like a hate crime kind of happen in the book was it something that you guys had said maybe we'll do it earlier and then it kind of got pushed off as you continued to develop the terry character or how did that kind of develop because again you come on not necessarily expecting to be on there for a long time but no but everyone kind of knows that this is a concept they wanted to introduce yeah um i mean the way the the way it kind of came about is um well the character's name was terry berg and uh at the time Kyle Rayner was a cartoonist and illustrator, and he hires an assistant. So he hires some teenage assistant who he doesn't have to pay very much. Um, so he hires an art student, uh, a kid named Terry Berg. And uh, I laid it out when Bob and I were talking. It's like, yeah, so he'll come out, and you know, I guess he'll be, you know, he'll be a survivor of this hate crime. And Bob, who uh, you know, he and Ron have been thinking about it, said, no, let's just take our time. He said, I don't want it to be quite the afternoon special or the very special episode where they just show up and this thing happens and we move on. He said, I'd like to introduce this as a, re- as a regular character. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, okay. And, you know, it's like, well, then why don't we, we, maybe we don't even have this kid come to terms with his sexuality for like a year. It's like, yeah, no, that'd be great. It's like, let's just take our time. That's what he did. So we introduced the character and he's just a regular, you know, he's a character, he's a kid. He's a teenage kid who's, you know, Kyle's assistant. And a year later, he kind of comes out um, because, you know, we, we sense that he's got kind of a crush on Kyle, which Kyle then has to deal with both, like, you know, not so much his slight homophobia, but also, you know, how this is not appropriate. <laughs> I am much older than you. You're a teenage. You're a teenager. And also, like, you know, so what's up with you? How can, you know, you know, how can I help you? Like, what's going on? And he has trouble with home about it. It's, it's a lot of things. So I got to deal with the idea of being a teenager and coming out, which was important to us as storytellers because we actually didn't feel that had been dealt with too much in mainstream superhero comics. You just didn't see that. You didn't see, you know, and we wanted it to sort of be in part and parcel with the soap opera of a superhero comic. Mm-hmm. Um, so we thought that, you know, 
kids who might be coming to terms with their sexuality or kids who even aren't coming to terms with their sexuality could see could really benefit from seeing this kind of story, seeing it represented out there. Mm-hmm. And we didn't want it to be clunky and we didn't want it to like come in quickly and then disappear. So that alone took a year. And then, I don't know, it might have been another year after that when Terry was, um, you know, was a victim of a hate crime, survivor of a hate crime. Um, and we just kind of took our time with it. Most, I, th- I think in hindsight, a lot of people felt like it was just like kind of rushed and came out of nowhere. And I, I don't know, I haven't, I haven't looked at it myself in a long time. And I know a lot of it probably played very much like a very special episode of Blossom, which was the joke I used to make. For those playing at home, Blossom was a television show many, many years ago with an, with an actor who's now on um, Big Bang Theory. Great, I can't remember. Thank you, Big Bang Theory. I, I, that's old I am I forgot the name of the show I was referencing there we go anyway um, yeah so um, so yeah so we kind of took our time kind of took our time hmm. now I, I was just rereading your run on Green Lantern this week and so I mean I, obviously reading in a more compressed format as opposed to over a long period of time but it didn't feel rushed because again you, you you build the character and it doesn't feel like it's just kind of out of left field like it you care about the character, and then when it happens, it has more of an emotional resonance. Now, when you're writing something like that, and you've been living with the character for, like, you know, as you said, almost two years, what, was it more difficult to kind of write the sequence when it, when the hate crime does happen? Yeah, it was. Um, it was definitely a little more unpleasant than I possibly imagined. I mean, both in that you know we have been sort of living and writing this character, and you know, it's part of our story, and now we're going to do something like really unspeakably terrible. And, um, you know, right down to sitting down with my wife, Pam, who's a doctor and saying, okay, so let's talk about, let's talk about injuries and how one describes it in, you know, in cold medical and a cold medical fashion. Um, and, uh, I mean, that was the part of it. It was going to be really, really ugly. Um, we also decided early on that he wasn't going to die. Um, just, you know, he was going to be a survivor of this hate crime. But um, we thought it was important to do, me in particular, because um, it, it actually created an opportunity to talk about hate crimes where someone in real life did not actually have to be a victim or survivor of a hate crime. We did it in fiction, and the conversation happened anyway. Mm-hmm. Follow I'm saying, like, you know, there didn't have to be another Matthew Shepard out there in the world um, for people to actually discuss it. You know, it was, you know, we, we made national news. It was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, it was covered in the New York Times and, you know, uh, we got to do a lot of mainstream press about it. And again, we're talking about hate crimes, you know, against, um, against you know, members of the gay community. And no one actually had to suffer. We made it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was I thought that was important. And we got to have the real conversations about it. What has the, I mean, obviously it's been a long time since the issue came out. I mean, it's been, what, 17 years, but, um, like, what was the fan reaction? Did you, was it mo- mostly positive that you got, or was there anyone who was kind of taken aback or thought it was maybe, like, too much for a superhero comic to be dealing with? Well, we should, like, <laughs> got to set the save a little bit that this is, uh, this is back in the, in the sort of quasi-dark ages of the Internet <laughs> compared to where it is now. It's pre-social media. This is when we just had things called message boards mm. where uh, readers would go on there and voice their opinions, criticisms, and concerns and adulations. The last of those being the last thing that people would ever do. It was usually – the message boards was usually a place to complain. 
And uh, the numbers were not that great. That was the whole thing is that a lot of what was being said on the message boards were taken to heart. And it was kind of a micro minority of people on there who were voicing their concerns. Um, the backlash was massive. People were really, um, you know, on, uh, you know, the hardcore fans, just, just a lot of them just hated it. But again, the people who are complaining are, it's a small number, but they are the loudest compared to the very, very, um, large portion of people who are not that vocal about it, who we heard about for years to come, for a decade to come. Uh, how much you meant to see that in there. Um, and, uh, it's it's also hard to to, to wrap it around because the, the the Green Lantern fans were actually the most aggressive and virulent at the time. It, they just were. I don't know what to tell you. It was something Ron told me. He said, "Yeah, of all the characters of all the ongoing series, they they seem to be the angriest." And I thought he was, I thought he was kidding, but then you know other people, you know edit, other editors of DC who were paying attention to things like the message board and the internet. It's like, oh yeah, no, people were on Green Lantern just just part of my language they just get rip shit they are just brutal um i think it had to go all the way back to when hal jordan went evil and became a character called parallax where he just he you know without unpacking it too much for the kids at home um he just <laughs> lost his cookies became evil and uh you know and then went on a rampage and became a bad guy um that's the short version and then kyle rayner came out of that after that the fans were pretty rabid so this was not something that necessarily was Something that they loved, um, but I was okay with that. I was I was more than ready for that, and um, you know I I knew of, of course our people weren't going to be happy about it, and a lot of it, a lot of it ranges from just plain old school homophobia. They don't want gay people in their comics. Um, to the other side of it, that they didn't want social issues in their comics, even though social issues have been in comics for a really long time. And Green Lantern and Green Arrow had a history of doing of stories just like this for a really long time. Um, so, yeah, so it, it, it ranged all over the place, um, and quickly gave me the reputation of being this left-wing commie egg-headed pinko who was putting all these, you know, you know, this, these, these social messages and, mm. uh, again, my, my commie agenda into, in ruining superhero comics. Um, I mean, for a long time, it's like, yeah, Judd's going to make characters gay again. Like one, I wonder which character he's going to make gay this time. When I actually never did that, <laughs> that actually never actually happened. It wasn't. There was never a time that where I went to a book and had an established character and decided that I'm going to quote make them gay. I never actually did that. I did introduce characters who, um, you know, might have been gay, and I actually introduced a lot of women heroes into the books and a lot mm -hmm. of people of color into the books. You know. Uh, you know, long before it became quite the horrible thing that apparently it is now. Um, you know, it's uh, that it became an entire uh, movement uh, to stop these sort of things. Again, which is, I believe, is like kind of a micro minority who um, is very virulent and loud. Um, and uh, and forgive me, a lot of times I feel like I don't want to come off as like the old guy who remembers the time when we started doing this and how hard it was back then. I don't want to give the impression that I think I'm sort of like, you know, there, you know, uh, you know, breaking, you know, breaking the color line in baseball or trying to, you know, <laughs> go, go in there and like, you know, trying to desegregate a lunch counter. That's not what this was. I was just putting, I was just putting like a diverse bunch of people into comic books. 
and a lot of people were uncomfortable about it then, and apparently a lot of people are uncomfortable with it now, hmm. which makes all the more reason why everybody should keep doing it. Absolutely, yeah. Well, it's interesting. So, uh, as I said, I was rereading it this week, and I, I found, I mean, I remember vaguely kind of hearing about what had happened to Terry at the time, but I wasn't re- reading Green Lantern, so it didn't, it didn't really hit for me. It didn't mean anything because I wasn't really following it at the time, and I came to it a little bit later because a friend of mine was like, oh, I love Kyle Rayner, you got to read all these comics, and then I kind of came to it. And then reading them again this week, like, it, the moment lands, I mean, the, the hate crime works, and, I mean, Dale's art is... And phenomenal on those issues too, because you feel the anger that Kyle goes through, and it's it's very harrowing, but like it works because you know, like if you're if you have all this power, and then someone you love or like really respect and is a good friend of yours gets hurt for no reason that you can think of that makes sense to you in your mind, and then you have all this power and you're dealt with dealing with that guilt, and then you just want to do everything you can to make them pay. Like it's a riveting issue because you really walk through this guy having to deal with this guilt of this friend of his being hurt for, for no good reason. And it still works on that level extremely well. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I think of, um, of all the stories I've done, I'm, I, I'm, I'm very pleased to hear that that story holds up. I'm so I, I literally have not looked at it in a while. I remember it quite well. Um, but I'm glad I am. It's, um, because uh, I, I still do hear from hear from people. I mean, you know, when I go to conventions, it it will happen every single time. They'll have someone who talks about like, yeah, it was the first time I ever saw something like that in a comic, mm-hmm. and it, usually someone someone you know someone who's gay or lesbian who said like it was just it was it was harrowing and it was um, inspiring. And it's like it just felt good to be represented, um, you know, even in a story that was so hard and so brutal. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad I'm glad you think it holds up. I appreciate that. Another element of your Greek GL run, which now that I've read a lot of Green Lantern books, which really sets it apart, it's so interesting, is that you really put a lot of effort into making Kyle's real life matter and and not just have it be a superhero thing. Because I feel like, especially now that they've kind of gone back to space cops as being kind of the concept, is that you don't always get a sense of who these people actually are in real life. Uh, Whereas you spend a lot of time with Kyle, you know, his relationship with Jade and his kind of mentoring relationship with Alan, uh, him dealing with John at the time who was in a wheelchair. Like, you, you had this vibrant world that you kind of built up around Kyle. And I forgive me, maybe it was already kind of there with with the Ron Mars stuff as well, but you really spent a lot of time in kind of cultivating that level so that you still had the fun superhero action, but you still also had uh, an affinity for Kyle as a person. And I really appreciate that, especially having read so much stuff that, stuff that came afterwards with Green Lantern books, where I felt like they got farther and farther away from having a, a real person kind of at the center of it. Oh, thanks. That was that was absolutely by design. My my hope going into it was, and as I, I spoke to you know Bob and Mike Garland about it, I said, yeah, I, I kind of want, you know, well, there's there's a there's a Spider Man of it all mm-hmm. with Kyle Rayner. I said he's a, he's a young he's supposed to be one of the younger superheroes, and he's supposed to be kind of the new guy. So with that, I kind of want to tap into it. And I said I said the thing that that could use more, you know that. We, we could spend more time with that hasn't been like done to death or, or anything is um, his personal life and who he is, you know, and his relationships. Um, some characters, we feel like we've delved into that a lot. Um, and I can keep coming up with new heroes and new villains and, and things you can do and whatnot. So, but a lot of it is pretty interesting. If I think we, you know, figure out who he is. And for me, as someone who was writing superhero comics, it was, it was an easier route to go as well. I put a lot of myself into it. I just tried to figure, you know, I, at the time writing it, um, 
I had just turned 30. So I'm figuring I had just a few years on, on Kyle, who was supposed to be in his mid-20s. So I just kind of put my mid-20s into, into doing Kyle Rayner. And to try to – I mean, that's the thing. Is, I mean, it's, it's true what people say about it. Like, you know, you, you, it helps when you make writing personal, even if you are – writing about a space cop with a magic ring you know it's um if, if you make it seem real in many many ways it's helpful it it makes the story have greater resonance you know and so i did things like you know like uh, kyle's not great at relationships um and he's still trying to work things out with jade and you know and stuff you know it's um and i think he had a really fun uh toy box a lot of fun cast to work with um i loved when it's like yeah, you know, let's let's have let's have Alan come on back here as the elder statesman and Jade's dad. You know, he's right there. What does he have to say about all this business? <laughs> and you know, then I asked permission to get John Stewart out of the wheelchair, and I was—I mean, literally, I just had to ask. That. I said, "Can I? Can we make him a Green Lantern again?" And there was a quick like, "Yeah." Like, "Oh, I don't have to pitch this." Like, "No, get him out of the chair." Like, "Okay." <laughs> like, I had this idea. Like, "No, I don't care. Go ahead, go ahead and do it." Like, "Okay, great. Okay, let's do that." Um, and that was a lot of fun. I was very, very proud to um, bring John Stewart back. That was, you know, that was really, a, a, you know, crowning achievement is the wrong word because it feels like I earned something. I was just happy to do that. Like, oh, cool, he gets to be Green Lantern again, mm-hmm. and I get to do that. Um, that's fun. That was fun for me. When actually, here's a, a random question, but when you're writing a character like Kyle, uh, when you're writing your scripts, how detailed were they in terms of the actual constructs that they used? Because some of them obviously were, you know, supposed to be something that a cartoonist would come up with. How much latitude did you give the artist to kind of come up with ideas, or were you kind of suggesting what some of the constructs should look like? Because that's such a huge part of any Green Lantern stories, kind of how they use their constructs to do different things. And obviously when you start writing uh, John as being Green Lantern again, again, you have this very technical kind of look to his his constructs as opposed to Kyle's, which again, we're kind of playing off of him being a cartoonist. So how much direction did you have to give either Dale or, or Daryl or some of the other fill-in artists in terms of what you wanted to see in the constructs? Well, I would say, I mean, tons, like really specific. But at the same time, the interpretation that goes into it Hmm. Um, it comes out of it, you know, if for some reason it's like, okay, I want him to make a train, but let's do an old school train with a cow catcher and the smokestack. Let's do one of those because it'll be a little bit funnier, I think, in this moment, you know, or going the opposite direction. Like, let's not do an old fashioned train. Let's make it look like a Japanese bullet train because, um, because I think it should be serious. And, you know, and there's a difference, you know, it's like, that's going to look a little goofy and we're going to go for goofy in this moment, you know, or. Like, I want them to make, you know, make a terrifying monster and, like, you know, it's like, uh, actually make it terrifying, nothing funny about it. Um, you know, you gotta get, it, most of the time in doing the constructs, they were very specific to the action involved. So, you got really specific. But what they actually finally cooked up, you know, when they were done, mm-hmm. was totally left to the interpretation of the artist. You know, what that bullet train is gonna look like and, you know, how big and how it's going to move or whatever. Um, it's all them and how, and how it rolls across the page. It's, it's so much more. I mean, we do call things out like, you know, you know, you know, page, page nine, panel one, and what's going on in panel one and then Mm -hmm. panel two and then panel three. And you might say, make panel three a half page, like, like do the whole half page to get it in there. And like, you know, things like that. But, um, the contract should get specific, but again, it's teamwork. You know, you might come up with the idea, but they have to execute it. Mm-hmm. 
When you were writing the book, you have Kyle go through two major costume changes, one when he becomes Ion, and then afterwards when he's kind of rechristens himself as Green Lantern. Um, was there any pushback with regards to, not the Ion costume, because that was obviously story-specific, but actually changing his costume moving forward, and then was it just kind of given to the artist to kind of come up with a new look, and were you involved at all in terms of what the new look would look like? Um, it was thought out that the two costumes, I mean, I had this storyline where Kyle was going to have all the power of the Green Lantern and become almost like a god. Um, and uh, I said, for, okay, so for this arc, he'll have a different costume. Dale cooked that one up. Um, and uh, to be, it's been long enough that I can tell this out of school story. So Dale was developing a few costumes for, um, with the idea being that when he when he stopped being Ion, like I had the story, like it's going to end here where he gives the power back and we're going to bring back the Guardians and they're going to be like children. And it's going to be really interesting and fun and kind of sad and sweet and beautiful. And uh, Kyle's going to become some regular old Green Lantern again and he's going to like have a new costume. I said, it's been a while. I said, I think you should have a new costume. And um, Dale was cooking around a few ideas and um, – I don't even think it got to the point of being shot down. I think they just pretty much just kind of took it away to Dale and said, yeah, Jim Lee's going to do it. <laughs> you oh, know, nice. um, Jim at that time had come, uh, had, uh, DC had bought Wildstorm and Jim was a part of the company now in a big way. And also like, you know, um, part of the creative think tank. And, uh, and Jim does amazing costumes. And, uh, I, I, as I recall, Dale was a little, beat it a little pissed off <laughs> as well should be he wanted to make a new costume but it was sort of taken away from him like yeah we're kicking it upstairs and jim's gonna make it i was like it's like oh man but i was like no no nope sorry uh <laughs> and uh then but jim made a great costume jim made a great costume i i and i i want to say that costume that he did is still is still the one that kyle is still sort of sporting i think minus the dog collar for those who are actually paying attention he actually had like like kind of a dog collarish thing going on. I think he's. Um, I think he's back to actually the more more of the classic look now, or his classic. Okay, look, I makes say. sense. Okay, but it, he did have yep. it for a while, and it was uh, it was a really cool costume. I just was always curious where that came from. I didn't realize it was actually Jim Lee designed. Jim Lee designed it. Jim Lee designed it. Jim Jim does um, Jim does beautiful costumes, I, and I think uh, people forget. I mean, one of the things that he did when he came on X Men so many years ago is that he redesigned all their costumes and most of what you're seeing in costumes today are influenced by what Jim did in X-Men when he first started. I mean, right down to he, he uh, cut the top off of a Cyclops mask and had his hair hanging out. Mm. Jim did that. <laughs> and, and that was actually, that was kind of a big deal. Like, you know, and, um, and things like them having belts and accessories and, you know, and, and boots that sort of didn't feel like it. It just, he did stuff. All this, all, all the things that you see in the modern costuming, so much of it came from Jim. So it was indeed an honor to have him doing that. And he did, he did our covers for a while too. And that was really cool. Mm-hmm. It was really cool. Now, um, I don't want to go into anything uh, bad, but like, how did your tenure on Green Lantern end? Or how did it kind of get decided that you were going to move on from the book? Because you'd been on it at least, what, two, three years. Yeah, I think it was at the, about the three-year mark, and um, um, I was ready to finish up. It wasn't that. It was like, um, I, I think uh, uh, Bob had been doing it a while for Ron, and I think, um, I, I want to say that Bob and I left together. Like, Bob was ready to leave Green Lantern, and he'd been doing it for a while. And um, at that point, I want to say uh, I was uh, I was going to go over to Green Lantern, Um yeah, I think that's exact. That, oh, that's what we did, right? We had a we had a one for one swap. Um, ben Rab was going to take over Green Lantern, 
um, and we did a uh, we did a crossover event where there was like uh, like I don't know maybe six issues we we went back and forth it was a crossover between Green Arrow and Green Lantern. Hmm. Ben wrote one issue, I'd write the next, and then when we were done. Ben began his tenure on Green Lantern, and that's uh, when I took over uh, on Green Arrow after uh, after Brad Meltzer had finished up. I think it was six issues Brad did uh, after Kevin Smith. I mean, all this was, for one, I'm trying desperately to remember and also trying to remember what, what else I was writing at the time. <laughs> I don't think I was doing Batman yet. I was definitely doing more than one monthly, I think. <laughs> I think you were st- had just finished Exiles, um, and I think this is around the same time as Titans Young Justice Graduation Day. Yeah, so what was going on here? Right, so I was doing Exiles and Green Lantern. I think those were my two monthlies, and that's right around when I signed an exclusive. That's when Dan DiDio came up with the idea of an exclusive contract and signed up me and Jeff Johns and Greg Rucka not long after that. Um, so I had, to, I had to leave Exiles, and then I went over. And, yeah, that's where we started cooking up Graduation Day, which led to um, uh, led also to Outsiders and uh, Teen Titans, which was you know a lot of fun, a lot of fun. So working on a title like Titans Young Justice, I'm curious. So obviously it's kind of the, the capper to that era's versions of Young Justice and Titans. How did... Like how early in the conversation was it like you're going to bring the, you're going to bring these two eras to a close and then you're going to launch a new book out of this which is Outsiders. Yeah, it was it was completely talked about. It was it was by design. It was it was it was part of the plan. Nothing about it was was haphazard or thought about on the fly. Um, you know, Dan uh, had this idea. You know, one being a new Teen Titans and another uh, he wants to bring back. Outsiders. And I think in the conversation we talked about, I said, I said, yeah, Nightwing should lead the team. I forget if Dan had that or I had that. We came up with it together. But it was all going to come out of graduation day, which was it was part of the discussion. It was me, you know, Dan Dio, and Jeff Johns talking about it. Um, I was going to write graduation day, and we knew at the end of graduation day that uh, that Donna Troy was going to die, that Donna Troy was definitely going to die. And part of it was um, just absolutely going to be that um, – and people really were upset about this. It was going to be it was going to be a terrible and not very heroic death because the whole point of it is that the, these teams like Young Justice was going to come apart. Hmm. Um, it was Young Justice, right? Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the whole idea is that the team was going to fall apart. And if she and if she died for, you know, if she went down swinging and it was a sacrifice and it wasn't the whole idea was that, like this was supposed to be a disaster and uh, Dick. Grayson was going to say, how the hell with it? I don't want to do this anymore. I just don't want to do this anymore. Um, that was going to be the idea. You know, graduation day. And it's like, we're, we're going to be adults now. We're done. Um, and that way we closed off that team and it gave room for, you know, the new Teen Titans, um, which seems so not new now. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, so like, you know, Tim Drake and and, and, and Connor Kent and, you know, um, you know, it seems nuts. Um, but that was brand new at the time. And it was all about, yeah, it's like, like you know, these kids are going to have to grow up. So something, so they're going to lose someone who they care about, and it's going to feel pointless. It's not going to be, it is not, you know, the death of Phoenix. It was the opposite of that. And I, and I know fans are really pissed off about that. They were not happy that Donna Troy did not die heroically. It's like, yeah, I know. It was, it was supposed to be bad, and it was supposed to be something that she obviously could have, um, you know, uh, 
just, 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 you know, couldn't she have stopped that, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, but, but she didn't. It's interesting, because reading it again, like, I mean, she's still at least in the middle of battle, and, like, almost almost won, and then gets taken out. Whereas, Le- whereas Omen just got, like, just her neck cracked, and there was nothing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, like, that's actually more, oh, no, she, that's she, almost harder she, uh, to read. She she got a she got a uh, laser shot through her chest. Um, she got a, she got heat vision. Well, it's not. Uh, it's, it's like like technical. Um, you know, <laughs> it was it is heat vision, but it came from the Superman robot, so it's actually not heat vision. It is a laser. Anyway, um, uh, <laughs> I'm running through my head. I hadn't thought about it in a long time. Um, but uh, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't supposed to be. It wasn't supposed to be fun. It was. Be, I mean, it was supposed to be really sad. I thought it was. I thought it really landed in the plane. Um, I was a little surprised how much people hated it. Not that surprised, but a little surprised. It's interesting too, though, because you do give it a nice denouement. The idea that you know she'd been having these dreams, and then she kind of wakes up somewhere and just kind of rushes into battle, and that's just who she is. So, like, as much as she quote unquote dies. People know comics that, that eventually uh, Donna Troy would come back, and she did. And again, you, yeah. le- you leave it off on a kind of her having a fighting spirit and still fighting onwards, no matter where she is. So, like as much as it's you know quote unquote sad that she's d- dead for now, because again, it's comics. Uh, but you do give right. her a send off that at least wherever she is, she's still Donna Troy. Right. And um, I felt pretty comfortable um, that yeah, it's like no, I, I'm sure she'll come back in some fashion at some point. It's and it's it's hard for fans. I mean, we can talk about this for hours about <laughs> the, the, I mean, the readers' sort of lack of. Um, well, it's it's. I wouldn't say understanding. Of course, they understand. Well, I should get to what I'm trying to say. Um, so, Batman turned 80 this week, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> in the sense that this this character's been around for 80 years. So, in the 80 years, to keep it interesting, a lot of different things have to happen. The character's never going to really evolve in a massive way. He can only be taken from, like, you know, not A to Z, but, like, you know, A to C. He's got a very small piece of real estate that he's going to occupy. He's he's never going to die. He's never going to grow old. Can't get married, really. You know, so it's it's all about finding these stories within these small parameters. So on occasion, big dramatic things have to happen just to, you know, just to keep things interesting and even, you know, uh, for a generation, for a decade of doing this hero, maybe something big has to happen. You know, like, you know, like a Robin has to die. Mm-hmm. You know, Jason Todd died. Okay, and I was lucky enough to be like, you know, the schmuck who gets to bring him back. And actually, you know, that it stuck. That it got to be both things. That it got to be this huge tragedy that he lost him. The tragedy of the loss hasn't gone away and it actually got worse because he came back and he's a villain. He's terrible. Um, you know, I got lucky in that way. But, you know, things happen. Things just to make it interesting. I mean, we. I joked uh, on social media just last week. Uh, I went to the uh, I went to the Shazam premiere, and Dan DiDio was there, and Dan and I were t- taking pictures, and um, I, I started joking. I really was. I was yelling while uh, my wife and uh, Dan's fiance were taking pictures of us, and I was saying like, like, yeah, it's like it's me. We're the ones who tried to kill Nightwing in Crisis. That was us. That was us, and we're just laughing. <laughs> You know, um, and we and the thing was, we did, we did, we tried to, we actually in the first crisis we wrote, uh, Dan and I uh, really wanted to kill off Nightwing, 
um, because we wanted it to have one crisis that had the biggest impact is the one we read when we were kids, which was Supergirl and Barry Allen died. And that was horrendous. It was just cataclysmic. And uh, we thought the universe could survive without Dick Grayson. And we thought it was going to be monstrous. It's going to be – it's going to set – Batman back, you know, it just takes him to a darker, more terrible place, and that's an interesting place for the character. For what we knew was probably going to be like a decade or so hmm. before Dick Grayson is brought back in some way, or the universe is rebooted, or whatever. Nothing is permanent, and it's not because we're going to retcon it as people talk. It's just that the nature of comics. You make these big moves, but then you, you know, then you you rejigger it again for another generation. It, it, it almost has to happen because it's just – it's the only medium that does this. Mm. There's nothing There's nothing else but comic books who have characters who are around for decades and decades and decades who are written like this. You know, you, you just – you retell them. You retell the characters. And sometimes, you know, I mean if you – I don't know if you tell some young person. Yeah, Barbara Gordon was in a wheelchair for like 10 years. Longer maybe. What, 15 years? I think it was and so, she yeah. became, yeah, it's like, and she became a whole new character. It was really, really interesting. Then they rebooted the universe, and she was Batgirl again. It's like, well, isn't she better as Batgirl? It's like, yeah, probably, but a lot of people got used to her mm-hmm. as as this you know technological wheelchair detective that she became. Mm-hmm. Um, but times change, and you got to move. And and I think with that, um, characters have to change, and you do big moves. These things happen. It is inter- it is interesting with something like I mean DC's pride for many years was obviously the the legacy component and I mean I'm young enough that like my generation's Flash is Wally and it was weird when Barry kind of came back and supplanted Wally and same thing with Kyle really I mean Kyle Rayner became the Green Lantern of my generation now I always loved Hal but I was kind of an outlier because everyone else my age was like Kyle's the the news the stuff he's he's the Green Lantern we love but eventually these characters kind of got shelved and it's interesting. Yeah, and also it's just, it is a generational thing. Like, my son, who's 13 now, uh, Green Lantern for him is Jon Stewart, because he mm-hmm. watched them on TV. Of course. He saw the animated series, and, um, you know, it is it was kind of funny when Ryan Reynolds' Green Lantern came out. They were talking about, there's a lot of kids out there saying, who's this white guy? <laughs> what is? He's not Green Lantern. Like, Jon Stewart's Green Lantern. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, we get to see that. But, again, it's like, they're all Green Lantern, you know, and, you know, and Batman's Batman. And yeah, and Nightwing might die at some point. And he might come back. And you know what? And Jason Todd might die yet again. And someone will bring him back. There's just, there's, there's all kinds of iterations. We're just, there's so many people just trying to tell a good story today. Hmm. That's what they're trying to do. Trying to tell the, the good one today, you know, and a story that will last for a few years. And then someone else is going to come along and, and undo it in some way. But it doesn't mean that story... It doesn't mean that story disappears. That's what I often tell readers. The you know the readers who uh, well let's talk about Barbara Gordon again. Um, it's like you know it's like it's not like those issues where um, great I'm blanking on her. What was what was her superhero name as uh, uh, Oracle? Uh, Oracle. Thank you. She was Oracle for a really long time. It doesn't mean the Oracle stories have been burnt up into ash and sent into space. You know they're still the, the stories are still there. It's like, well, they don't count anymore. It's like, what do you don't come on? Yeah. What does that mean? They don't count anymore. That's the hard part that a lot of fans can't wrap their heads around, and readers can't wrap their heads around that. Even though they've changed this character, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist anymore. And if you find yourself in this weird place where saying like they never really did exist, okay? They're fiction. <laughs> it's like it wasn't it wasn't ever real. You know, these characters are never alive. They were never dead. This is a story. 
and we're just telling the story. And those stories still exist. They're still there. You know, I, I, I read me? I read this a thing once, but I think it was Tom Brevoort talking about how um, comic book fans have to let go of the Mark Gruenwald way of everything fits and all right. continuity matters. Not obviously to put yeah. down Mark Gruenwald, but I mean, there was a time and a place when that was just easier. And a lot of people kind of grew up in the idea that all continuity was shared and it was a good thing. And unfortunately, from a writing standpoint, it can become a shackle if you're beholden to it. And so and it's the idea that, you know, let things go like it doesn't have to everything line up completely. But it is hard to kind of break yourself away from if you've grown up thinking that continuity matters and everything needs to matter and everything needs to fit, then it can somewhat be hard to reset your mind from that. And I think that's what people have a, a trouble adjusting to because you're right like everything's gonna you have to keep it fresh things have to happen things are gonna change things are eventually gonna go back to normal and that's that's fine that's That's absolutely right that's absolutely right yeah and it's it's kind of generational i mean i i'm not sure that the readers in in the 1960s and 70s were getting so worked up because oh that's wrong they that's totally different from the thing they did three years ago i don't (laughs) it was just was it was a different mindset and then somewhere in the 80s and 90s, we started to get to the we work on sticklers. We're getting really particular. Like, we can't do that because we did that here. And that's not what happened there. And that's not right. Like, Batman can't do that because he did that here. And Spider-Man can't do that because he did that here. And we started getting really, really, really tight about continuity. And um, with that, it becomes a problem because if you're beholden for a story that was 20 years old mm. and by the way, the character hasn't changed at all in 20 years. You know, it's, it's, they're not 20 years older. But the story that you're you're hanging on to is from 20 years ago, you know, some detail, and maybe it's a major detail, but still, um, it's hard. It's hard to keep it interesting. So things have to happen. Things have to move. Things have to be rebooted and changed. But the fundamentals of the characters almost always stay the same. You know, that means the thing is that when you get down to it, who these characters are fundamentally are still pretty much the same. Um, you know. Batman is this way, and Spider-Man is that way, and, you know, and you, the Fantastic Four are this way, regardless of it. You know, Reed Richards is never going to be, you know, the tough guy who's sporting two guns and uh, says, no, we're going to take them all out and the whole place has to die. No, Reed Richards is always going to be the genius. <laughs> that's that's who he is. Now, he might be a lot younger in this one. He might be a lot older in this one. He might They might introduce him, and he's a whole different race. But at the end of the day, he stretches and he's really smart. That's Mr. Fantastic. Everything else is kind of up for grabs. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I have, a, I, have, I, have, well, I have many, many questions, but we are running a little bit shorter on our time. So I have a question because you brought it up. What did you think of the Shazam movie? Oh, I really loved it. I really loved it. I want to give a thing away. Um, I should preface by saying that, you know, I, I'm not fancy. I don't get to go to premieres. <laughs> this, was, uh, this was kind of kismet. Um, uh, my family happened to be in Los Angeles uh, on spring break for my kids' spring break, and that combined with the fact that not a lot of people have actually written Captain Marvel Shazam mm-hmm. in the last twenty years. So when they put together a list of people they were going to offer, you know, from DC talent, uh, like, hey, do you want to come to the premiere? Um, I happen to be one of them because I did a bunch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, mean, I was joking with Dan, like, there's not a lot of us actually have done Captain Marvel. I said, yeah, like, not yet. Now, you know, things are going to change now. But um, so I was lucky enough to go. And it was great. 
it was great. I don't. I, again, I don't want to give any of it away. Other than the movie's terrific. It is pretty much the tone you see from the trailers, which is it's very funny and very action packed and uh, pretty dramatic here and there, and sort of captures what has been my mantra about what Captain Marvel should be. Said it's kind of Superman meets Big, mm-hmm. and. It is exactly that. Well, it definitely um, leans into that very heavily, and there's like uh, obviously a very direct shout out to that. Yeah. Oh no. Have you seen it? I have. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Well, uh, we won't give it away, but yeah. No, they actually. Yeah, they give a nod to Big. It's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. I, again, I, I won't give anything away. Although I have a, an episode of, of this podcast has already gone up, which does spoil the movie, but does have spoiler warnings on it. But there was at least one big surprise for me that I didn't think they would actually get to it, and I was was cool in the latter half. Um, I, I guess I, I don't want to say anything more than that, but yeah, it had surprises. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, and I, I have to go. I have to go listen to your episode pretty much. I think tomorrow morning while I'm working out. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I did. I did not know that you guys talked about it, so I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. But no, yeah, it was a, you know, it was, it was a, a very fun movie, and I, although I, I, it was more slightly more adult than I thought it was going to be. Like there's people with like little kids, and I was like, ooh, the, some of the stuff is going to be scary. Okay, you know what? Thank you. It's the one criticism I came away with. And, uh, and, you know, I don't work for the company anymore. I was grateful to go to the premiere. But I will say um, there were there was about a good, I'll say, um, 60 seconds of the movie that could have been cut at different points. I don't mm. mean like, like 60 seconds in a row. I literally mean like cut 10 seconds there, cut 7 seconds there, <laughs> cut 20 seconds here. And it was a lot more kid-friendly. There, um, you know... Uh, I'll, I'll, any parents listening out there, there's some monsters in the movie which are scary as hell, mm-hmm. and they didn't need they didn't need to be they, they didn't serve the plot. They didn't quite need to be that horrific and do quite the horrific things they, that they did. And I swear to God, I really do mean it. Like you cut 60 seconds out of this movie, it's a, it, it's 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 that much more user friendly for a kid out for sure. Um, now, do you think uh, part of that though is attributed to the fact that they marketed it being very light, and that maybe that's what kind of led to that more of a not tonal issue but like being a little scarier like because of the marketing being so happy and go go lucky and that if they'd gone a little bit not as family friendly on the on the marketing that you might feel differently um in terms of going into it and its perspective i look at this movie and i see it as an all-ages movie i just you know of and it, it really is there's nothing about it that isn't all ages um except except a few of these moments and i think um I just think they, they uh, and for all I know that it was more it, it was it was more frightening and, and darker mm. and they cut back and <laughs> that's the thing is like they might have lost a lot of stuff that we didn't see and they thought like this was a perfectly good compromise and they took it back to mm. you know again it's like it's just a few minor moments here and there um, I think that uh, Captain Marvel can be an all ages movie and that's the one they made uh, just based on who the character is. You know, because he has a kid, he's a teenage boy, and you can make you can make it dark as hell if you wanted to. But it's one of those things. Like, but why? That's for me. That doesn't ring true to who the character can be, not who the character's been. Who the character can be, mm. and I think he can be this. I think he can be, you know, a guy with the powers of Superman, who's who's actually a teenage boy inside, and that's way more interesting than. The debate that goes on, yes, but he's got the wisdom of, so- of, of you know Socrates, so he he shouldn't act like a kid. It's like, yeah, great. Then he's just boring as hell. Then he's just Superman. Who cares? Why do that? Like, don't do that. Don't make a Superman clone. Make him give him his own identity. Um, I mean, I it's great, and it's it's uh, Captain Marvel Shazam is like right in my personal wheelhouse. That is uh, that is the kind of story I like telling right now. 
Um, so I had a great love for it. I think it's a lot of fun. But again, for moms and dads taking the real little ones, mm. there's a couple moments there where they're like, yeah, it's like scary as hell. <laughs> for sure. Um, actually, I have a question about the premiere. Was, was Jerry Ordway there? Um, I believe he was. I didn't see him. Um, I got to I got to park next to my good buddy Mike Kunkel, uh, who uh, did uh, did a, the Shazam series for a while after Jeff Smith did his run, and uh, got to hang with Dan DiDio. I mean, we were having a really it was it was a spectacularly good time. Man's Chinese Theater. Um, I've only been to like you know a smidgen of premieres in my entire life. This was a big honking ridiculous Hollywood premiere. Um, and, and it was great, you know, and the director and, and Zachary Levy were, you know, got to introduce the movie and they both got legitimately choked up and it wasn't, it wasn't Hollywood nonsense. These were two, uh, these were two people who were very moved because there we are, you know, man's Chinese theater and you're, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and it's the premiere of a superhero movie and he's the lead. It's just great. It was great. It was a lot of fun. I highly recommend everybody in sometime in their lifetime, try to go to Hollywood premiere. It's really neat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that might be tough, but okay. Yeah, just, but I, I, that's why I'm sort of joking. Like, yeah, you can swing it. I highly recommend it as an experience. It was neat. All right, so I feel like uh, I have like maybe only a couple minutes left and I have to kind of narrow it down and, and pick which series I want to ask about next because there's sure. again, so many things of yours that I have questions about but and good ones, not, not negative ones. Um, so I guess let me ask about Outsiders because fantastic run that you had on the book and especially when you kind of ramp things up uh, at the end of the second year and you had the intrigue of like who the traitor was and like there was just so much going on um, what was it like to did you know exactly kind of where the point was going to be that you were going to do the crossover with Teen Titans and you were going to kind of have everything come to a head like how far in advance were you and Jeff talking about how the books were going to kind of parallel right at the end and have this big reveal oh we yeah we planned it from the very beginning just from the very very beginning um what we needed, what we were going to do, how it was going to break out. You know, we were already planning our series runs while I was still working on graduation day. It was all dovetailing. I mean, this, this, is, this was a time then it was like, you know, me, Jeff, and Dan sitting down and and breaking it down, like how we want to do this and what we have in mind. And um, so it was very, very, very planned out, very, very tight and so much fun. We had so much fun back then. It was really, it was it was a good time to do this, um, and uh, uh, you know, because uh, it, it was again Dan like gave us the keys of the car. It was a lot, it was just so much fun, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I mean, it, for for Jeff, um, he always wanted to do Teen Titans, and um, I always wanted to do a, a team book for DC. And it was an opportunity to do this and sort of reinvent it. And what I went down with is that I kind of want to make it a little dark. I want to make it a little tough, like grown-ups. And this was sort of my dark and gritty phase um, <laughs> for DC Comics. And there was and, and DC Comics ended a and entered a dark and gritty phase around this time. And Outsiders was one of those books. Um, Paul Levitz made me and Dan uh, pull back a whole lot here and there. <laughs> Just now you're like, nope. Too much, like yeah, okay, oh, come on, like nope, no, you're not doing that. Um, and it was, it was a uh, more about sex and sexuality and stuff like that. No, mm-hmm. not sexuality, sex uh, here and there. Um, I wanted to do a grown-up book. In hindsight, um, you know, it was a lot of fun doing the very grown-up books and making them darker and grittier. And for because that was at a time where we were trying really, really hard to make comic books being taken seriously. We wanted them to be taken seriously. We wanted to say like it's not for kids anymore, man. And boy, they weren't. Um, I think the pendulum eventually swung uh, 
too far in the other direction, that we made them too much for grownups. But it was a blast. And, um, you know, and I was having a really good time. I mean, you know, Dan calling me up after, like, handing in a script, like, oh, my God, you got, you got like, this gorilla from Gorilla Grodd's army is a suicide bomber falling out of the sky onto Air Force One. By the way, Lex Luthor's president. It was just nuts back then. It was so fun. <laughs> so fun. And, you know, I'd call it stupid, but it wasn't because we took it so seriously. Um, but having a blast at the same time. Like, how outrageous and crazy can we get? Um, and it was cool. I had a really good time doing Outsiders. No. And, uh, and, you know, and brilliant artists, just brilliant artists. Oh, for sure. Just to I mean, it looks so good. And uh, I mean, when, when you do the conclusion of the two years and you have the insiders crossover and everything, I mean, you have Carlos, D- D- I guess, Deanda, and you have, um, oh, I can't remember the other one, Sean Mole, I think. Um, yeah, like, we started with Tom Rainey and, and, uh, and, and Chris Cross, and they just, oh, you know, wow. ah, you know, and, uh, and Tom just made the most beautiful people in the whole wide world. You know, I mean, I, um, in all deference to everybody who drew Nightwing before uh, Tom, I heard more people saying, like, I've never seen Dick Grayson look so sexy as when, you know, <laughs> you know Tom's drawing him. And, uh, and he did. He really did. He just said something about him. He just really captured him. Just so captured him. When, when you guys were kind of getting the ground running and knowing that you were going to launch Outsiders and, again, you were going to have Arsenal and Nightwing kind of the, the main leaders of the team, um, what did the redesign of Arsenal, like, where did it come from? Because, obviously, in Graduation Day, it has a very different look and aesthetic. And then when you come into Outsiders... Very different, much more modern, uh, much more kind of not stereotypical badass, but definitely kind of looking that way in terms of the time period. Um, was that kind of coming from you in terms of what you wanted him to look like and the overall costume design, or what was that process like? Because it really does inform how Arsenal feels throughout that book. Like, I feel like if they hadn't changed his costume, that maybe it wouldn't jive as well with your writing. So I'm just curious where that process came from. We talked about it. We talked about it. Like, um, um, that, you know, Nightwing's costume is going to stay pretty much the same. And no lie, I think part of it is, is like a marketing issue. Like, you know, he, he was pretty well defined, but, and, but there, there's not a lot of posters floating around with Arsenal. So <laughs> like, yeah, let's mess around the costume. Let's like, let's shave his head. Maybe give him a soul patch. I forget exactly what we did. Um, you know, and, and Tom came up with it. Tom does really good costumes. And, um, again, it was, you know, the, the, the stakes are lower because it's Arsenal. So you can mess with things a lot. Um, and I just, yeah, it was part of, like, wanting to make it the grown-up book. Um, and uh, part of it also was that Arsenal was going to be kind of the leader of the team because Nightwing was not interested, um, which was fun. And, uh, again, we had a blast coming up with a lot of it. I think I think uh, Grace, who was our, uh, you know, you know, almost eight-foot-tall powerhouse, um, I think I, I quasi-designed her costume a little bit. I might sketch that out a little bit for Tom. Tom came up with Thunder um, as far as her costume and her look. Um, but I, you know, I had this idea like, you know, she'll wear a wig. She'll wear a blonde wig because, you know, because um, Black Lightning actually wore a wig as well during his first incarnation. <laughs> his first incarnation, he wore an Afro wig, which was attached to his domino, like his mask. He took it off as a one piece. <laughs> I swear to God. So we talked about that. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, but you know what? She should wear a wig. She'll wear a wig. She'll wear a long blonde wig. And when she takes it off, she's got, you know, she's got, sh- she's got short hair under there. And we'll do that. Um, so things like that. It was, a, again, it was a way fun time. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. When, when you're putting together a cast like that, I mean, again, you have two brand new characters. You, I mean, essentially kind of, you ended up having a new character in the, in the form of Shift, who is 
looks familiar, but ends up being very different. Um, and then you also have Jade coming back into the book as well. Was What was that kind of discussion? I mean, again, your book is launching kind of parallel to Teen Titans, which has all the big names, right? It has all the big names from Young Justice, plus a lot of everyone's favorite characters from the new Teen Titans, besides uh, Robin, obviously, or Nightwing. Um, and now you're kind of doing this kind of interesting, edgy book with new characters. I mean, was there any pressure at all to kind of add kind of more regular characters that people would kind of bond with better? Or was it just more do your own thing, have fun, you know, just kind of chart your own course? We were talking about it all so much. There was there was no surprise. There was nothing left up. I mean, we literally, like, okay, I'm thinking about this lineup. It's like, you know, and, and nothing got shut down. It's like, okay, Arsenal, Nightwing. It's like, we want to introduce some new characters and, you know, kind of came up with the idea of this legacy character. It's like, yeah, Black Lightning's got a daughter named Thunder. And, like, you know, it's like, I'll write the story. And, like, you know, no, he's, he's got a daughter. We just haven't seen. It's like, there's nothing to it. Like, it's not illegitimate or anything like that. It's just like, whatever. We haven't been following his day-to-day life. It's like, so he's got a daughter. She's grown. We you know, make a point that he's an older hero. Oh, there, she's in there. It's like, and I got this one here. Like, I want to bring back Metamorpho because he's from the original team, but let's eventually make him not the original Metamorpho. It's like, what happened to Metamorpho? Where is he? Like, uh, he disappeared kind of like he fell out of space when they blew up <laughs> um, when they blew up the Watchtower in Justice League like nine years ago. It's like, okay, so where is he? Like, I think he's in a lab, like as a ball of goop. Like, okay, well, I can work with that. Give me, you know. So stuff like that. It was all talked about for months. Um, and then when we had the lineup, we just started writing. You know, we I, I started writing, you know. Um, none of it was really left up to chance. And a lot of it was just talked about. And not even like breaking out outlines. We're sort of just talking about with Dan and talking about it with, with our editors and, you know, and having some fun. It really was. It was uh, – we did not get – we did not get pressure to put this character in there because, again, it was talked about so much in advance. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's if if anything, the 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 day to day grind of like, well, you can't put that character in there because he's doing they're in this mini series and they're going to be outer space for like a year. It's like, oh, okay, I can't do that with him. You know, it's like, oh, well, Nightwing broke his leg in his his monthly, so you got to make sure his leg is sort of kind of broken in in Outsiders. Like, okay, I got it. You know, it's things like that, things mm-hmm. like that you got to keep an eye on. For sure. Uh, last question before I let you go. Um, yes, sir. And this is an outsider's question. Uh, how did uh, using John Walsh come up? <laughs> this is the one that I razzed Dan about. This is the one I razzed Dan about. Because uh, it was D- Dan posed it to me, and uh, I was sort of 50 50 on the idea. And I said, So is this going to be one of those things where you put like an actual, like, you know, picture of him on the cover, like an alternate one, like as a photo cover? He goes, Yep, we're going to do that. And. Uh, <laughs> And I said, well, he said, can you come up with something? He's like, yeah, I think I can. I think I can. I think Dan really liked uh, Mr. Walsh as a person. And we talked to him on the phone a couple of times, a bunch actually. Um, and he gave us stories that would, man, would just set your hair back. Like the worst things you could possibly imagine. Um, he is very much like Batman. I mean, in the sense that his, 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 the great tragedy of his life sort of formed him into uh, a crime fighter. Uh, and you know, Jeff and I both, when we got off the phone, Jeff said, he's like Batman. Jeff's the one who said that. It's like, it really is. Um, and we, we kind of just got enchanted about the idea of trying to honor him in, uh, in a comic. And, uh, I, I am reasonably sure that one came off pretty clunky. There's no way it couldn't because there's a real life character in there and mixing the real life character into our superhero story. I think parts of the story probably worked pretty well as far as like, cause we, we just made sure that I think a lot of it had about you know Grace has kind of her origin stories and that she you know is a survivor of abuse um, 
so that kind of worked. But Dan just had this crazy idea in his head, and for years after that, I would bring it up to him now and again. It's like, it's like, hey, I did the John Wall story, no questions asked. So like, you know, you, you give me some latitude on this thing, um, <laughs> you know. And uh, I still think it was a pretty good story. I think it's still kind of hung up, but it's it's always going to be clunky when you introduce like real real life characters. Um, but it was good. It was good. So interesting. So he just had this kind of idea that I want to use John Walsh, like. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I don't. I don't think it was any more than that. I don't think it was like that. They. Uh, um, it, it might have been. It might have been the Walsh people coming. I. You know what? I think it might have been them. I think his camp came to DC and wanted to do a couple of special issues where like he was inside a comic, like kind of old school. And uh, Dan said, like, well, it's it's you know the stuff he does is dark as hell. So let's put him in Outsiders. And Judd's the most agreeable, so let's do that. <laughs> Judd <laughs> likes to make trouble like I do. Dan's thinking, let's do that. I mean, looking back, it probably was the tonally the, the, the best fit. I'm just thinking about the different books being published at the time. And, I mean, everything else, it would have felt so much more out of the ordinary. Yeah. No, probably. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Kind of feels like the type of thing that outsiders would do. So. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, and so my last question about Outsiders. So it's actually finally being republished or reprinted in two upcoming collections. Uh, what is that like? Well, actually, it's going to be more than two, but what is it like for you to be able to kind of see finally the, this work being recollected so that people can go back and enjoy it? Oh, I'm very excited. I'm very, very excited. I mean, it's fun how, you know, they're, you know, it's, it's these characters are creeping in. I think it's part of it's coming back because these characters are creeping into. Um, you know, other medias because, you know, uh, Thunder and Grace are now on the Black Lightning TV show. Um, so um, <laughs> it's fun that a lot of my stuff is creeping into movies and TV shows so they get to be reintroduced. And it gets, it gets to be reintroduced. I'm not doing any new work. And also it's without the specter of being you know, ripped apart on message boards anymore the work comes out in its entirety um it's all kind of all about the love now which is kind of fun mm. and um and to be honest i'm excited now just to have them collected again um because uh, uh, well my, my my kids can read the old trades but i think it's there's also something fun about like this new one came out like here check this out this new snazzy version all in one all one-stop shopping here's the outsiders and that's kind of neat that's kind of neat well it's it's always an honor considering how adult uh, outsiders is when do you let your kids read it um as i think i said last time my son is 13 has begun reading uh begun he he read he read batman my okay. Batman my daughter who is uh, gonna be 11 um, well later this year um, but she's an old she's an old 10 uh, she's gonna start being Batman um, but uh, I think he's about ready for Green Arrow and he's about ready for Outsiders he's 13 he's probably he's probably ready a little bit while ago I was probably dragging my feet um, I dragged my feet on Barry Ween for a long time with him mm. there's a lot of oral sex jokes in there which made me deeply uncomfortable to give to my son um, <laughs> when, he, when he turned 13 he's like nah 13 we can do it I'm do it that's fair well, Judd, thank you again for spending so much time with us. I mean, someday in the future, I still have questions about Titans, about your run on Batman, writing Dick Grayson as Batman, like so many things. But I appreciate you taking so much of your time to go through this uh, this period of your of your career with me. Oh, it was my pleasure, sir. Thank you for making the time. Absolutely. I had a great time doing this. So anytime, count me in. All I right. love comic shenanigans, and you're the best. <laughs> thank you so much. You have a great day. You too. You take care, sir.